Welcome back to the Helio Hormones Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Danielle, and this is the exercise episode. So, you know, we know that what we eat and how much we sleep and how we're managing our stress, all of that is going to play a role in our hormones. So, of course, how we move our body and how we choose to exercise is going to play a role as well. Now, I want to preface this by saying not every body is the same. What you enjoy is not going to be the same as your sister or your neighbor or your best friend. So what I'm going to be discussing in this episode will be just kind of general recommendations. If I say something and you're thinking, well, I do the opposite of that and I am thriving and I feel great. I love that for you, but this is going to be just general information about how different forms of exercise impact our hormones, who can benefit most from each type of exercise, and then really how to get started with exercise, because I think that can be one of the biggest challenges and hurdles when it comes to switching up or even just starting an exercise kind of routine. And then on Instagram, I had asked you to submit questions, so we'll be getting to those as well towards the end. So the way we're going to kind of break it down is into different types of exercise. We're going to be talking about high-intensity exercise, strength training, walking, and Pilates and yoga, which can kind of be grouped together. So let's start with the high-intensity. So what I mean by high-intensity, I mean long-distance running or sprinting, spin classes, or HIIT classes, so that high-intensity interval training things like Orange Theory or CrossFit. Now, in general, this form of exercise, although it's been kind of beat into us that the only way to see progress and to feel the burn and to make it worth it is to do these forms of exercise, these really aren't the best for women's bodies when it comes to our hormones. So for one, these higher intensity exercises typically spike cortisol, which is our stress hormone. For a lot of women, when we're already stressed, cortisol is already elevated and exercising in this way is only going to add to that. High cortisol levels can increase inflammation in the body. So if you're already struggling with signs of general inflammation, like joint pain, brain fog, hair loss, fatigue, then increasing inflammation beyond that is not what you want to do. High cortisol can also lead to more weight gain, especially um, fat in the abdomen. And then it can also lead to lower progesterone levels, which can be a problem, especially if you are trying to get pregnant. Low progesterone is often tied to miscarriage during the first eight weeks. And now because cortisol is being overproduced, cortisol is produced in our adrenal glands, our stress glands. There's another hormone that's made in our adrenal glands called DHEAS. And if you have PCOS, you may be familiar with this hormone. If you have PCOS and you're not familiar with this hormone, you should be. You should be asking your doctor to get this tested. DHEAS is a hormone that is in the same family as testosterone. So this family of hormones is called androgen hormones. And DHEAS can be overproduced when we are stressed. And that can be an emotional stress or it can be due to a physical stress like running a marathon or doing CrossFit five times a week. When we have high DHEAS levels, it can lead to acne 
hair loss, facial hair growth, and irregular periods and make it difficult to get pregnant. Then to circle back around to the inflammation piece, if we have high cortisol and our body is inflamed, that can also contribute to inflammation in our thyroid, which can be problematic if we have hypothyroidism, which we know is super common. Hashimoto's in particular, which is that autoimmune condition that attacks your thyroid. And we know that women with PCOS have a higher risk of having hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's antibodies than women without PCOS. So we definitely want to keep inflammation low in the body. We want to maintain healthy cortisol levels, healthy DHEAS levels, and not stress the thyroid. This is one thing that I've noticed myself in the past. So I have Hashimoto's. And before I really understood how to exercise for my body, I would do the spin classes. I tried Orange Theory, which I hated, but I made myself go to it. I tried CrossFit and injured my back. I was a marathon runner for a while in college. Um, I even did, this is kind of like my very last race I ran, and I will never run a marathon again. But the last race I ran is called the Goofy Challenge which takes place in Disney World. And basically you run a half marathon on Saturday and then you run a full marathon on Sunday. It was miserable. My feet were completely destroyed afterwards. Like they hurt worse during the second half of that marathon than they ever did during my ballet career. And I didn't run after that. But sidetracked a little bit. When I would do these high intensity exercises, afterwards I would feel like garbage. Like I was just exhausted. And I just thought like, well, you know, you exercise a ton. So of course you're going to feel tired, but I would do these training runs on the weekend and then have to come home and nap like two to three hours. And I was basically just spending my Sundays running and napping. When you exercise, especially with hypothyroidism, you want to make sure that after exercise, you're feeling energized. You should feel better than when you started. You shouldn't feel completely depleted. Now, of course, there's pros to high-intensity exercise, right? It's not all bad. This form of exercise can help lower cholesterol. It can help lower risk of heart disease. It can improve mood. You know, it does boost dopamine, serotonin. So there are good things to it. But if you're one of those people who has done these higher-intensity exercises for years and you are not seeing the progress or the change you'd like to, or maybe you're starting to feel worse with these types of exercise, then ask yourself, you know, maybe it's time to try something different. And I know that that can be scary, especially again, since we've been kind of programmed to believe these high intensity exercises are what's going to lead to the weight loss and, you know, lead to the endorphin high. And how are we going to break a sweat if we're not you know, at spin class four times a week. But I promise you there are other forms of movement out there that can feel just as good and most likely perhaps make you feel better in your body and more energized as a result. So that's kind of just my spiel on high-intensity exercise because I get asked a lot, like, you know, why isn't this good for women? And I'll say I have patients who do, you know, it's a little scary for them, but they do commit to trying other forms of movement and they are always amazed at how much better they feel or the fact that they're able to finally see the changes in their body that they've been chasing for years. So just some food for thought. 
It's not necessary that you have to completely eliminate these high intensity exercises if you're one of those people that like loves to run or loves their orange theory, but maybe you don't do it four to five times a week. Maybe you do it once or twice a week and then you find other things to supplement throughout the week. So a little more balance to it. All right. Next one is strength training, which is so important. This is Without a doubt, number one form of exercise I recommend for my patients with insulin-resistant PCOS. So some benefits of strength training. First, of course, it's going to increase our muscle mass. We're going to have more muscle cells, and our muscle cells can actually use up blood sugar faster. So it's going to help to lower blood sugar quicker and keep blood sugar stable. Now, with insulin-resistant PCOS, it's that high blood sugar and high insulin levels that can cause our ovaries to overproduce testosterone and leads to irregular periods. So if you're thinking of getting pregnant with PCOS, you have to think, what is the root cause? The root cause is the blood sugar. The blood sugar needs to be improved before you'll see improvement in your hormones. And one way to do that is by building more muscle through strength training. Strength training can also actually change our genes responsible for causing insulin-resistant PCOS. I thought it was really interesting, but there is a study that looks at that. Strength training does not spike cortisol or stress hormones. It's going to help support healthy cortisol levels, and it can still help improve mood and improve sleep by changing our melatonin and serotonin and dopamine production. And again, as insulin levels improve, so will testosterone levels if that is what's driving high testosterone levels in PCOS. Now, on the flip side of that, if you have low testosterone, then strength training can also help to increase testosterone. So if you have high testosterone related to blood sugar imbalance, it'll help to bring it into balance. But then if you have low testosterone, then building muscle can help increase it as well. So it can kind of help if you're on either end of the spectrum. It can also help with estrogen levels because as we build more muscle and lose fat, we are going to have healthier estrogen levels. So we know that we have higher estrogen when we have higher body fat. So those are just some of the benefits, but what exactly does strength training involve? It can involve free weights. So things like bala bands or dumbbells or even a can of soup. Like it doesn't have to be fancy, just anything that you can hold that's a little bit heavy. It can include weight machines at the gym. We've, you know, we've all seen those, the, you know, the, the ones that are kind of overwhelming to use if you don't know what you're doing. I remember going to my college gym, the University of Vermont gym, and I had never been in like a proper gym before. With ballet, we had rooms for cross training, but it was, it wasn't as overwhelming as it, a college gym was. I just remember going and like kind of looking at the machines out of the corner of my eye while I was on the elliptical, trying to sort of figure out like what they did and how to use them before I actually had to go and like approach the machine because it was just, I was terrified. Um, but then along with free weights and weight machines, body weight exercises. So this can be done at home, squats, lunges, push-ups you know, shoulder presses, holding those soup cans. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be a whole production of going to the gym for an hour. It can literally be 10 to 15 minutes in your living room while you watch The Bachelorette. It it does not have to be anything over the top. So if you are thinking about, okay, I feel like I could benefit from maybe adding in some strength training, but I don't know where to start. 
first I would start with 10 to 15 minutes for a session. Again, it doesn't have to be crazy long. Start with 10 to 15 minutes and then maybe pick one to two days a week where you know it's going to fit with your schedule and you know you're going to have the energy for it. So if by Friday you are feel like a zombie and you just want to crash on the couch, don't plan for that to be the day you exercise. Maybe you do it on a Saturday morning and um, Monday afternoon or a Tuesday afternoon. Plan ahead so that it actually does happen because it's so easy to say, I'll do it sometime this week. And then the week flies by and the weekend comes and you'll say, oh, I'll do it next week. And then the kind of same cycle happens. So at the beginning of the week, sit down, look at your schedule and, and really map it out. So 10 to 15 minutes to start one to two times a week. Now, as you start to feel more confident and you're feeling stronger and you are, you know, you're starting to get the hang of strength training, then you can start to increase it. You know, maybe you move to 20 minutes and 30 minutes, maybe, you know, I would say you don't really have to do it longer than 40 minutes. Like I'd say that's like the max you need to strength train in one day. And then you can, you know, increase that to three or four times a week. And I'm going to be talking about, you know, kind of like scheduling with working out, but it really just depends on what you like. If you love strength training and you want to do it four to five times a week, awesome. If you don't love it, but you like it and you know, you know, you know, it's good for you, then maybe you do it one to two times a week and you find other things to do the rest of the week. There's not a hard and fast rule of what you have to do each week. There's any benefits to different types of exercise. And I think getting a mix in is great, but at the end of the day, also enjoying it is important. Also consider, you know, what format do you enjoy most? Do you enjoy group classes? Maybe you have a friend that will go with you and that can be like a social thing you do each week. Do you work really well one-on-one when someone's telling you what to do? So maybe getting a trainer if that's available to you, or are you somebody who likes it to be as easy as possible and finding an app at home that you can do maybe just rolling out of bed and doing it on the floor next to your bed, like that's what's going to make you successful, then do that. So two apps that I like for kind of like strength training that are more body weight focused. One is called Form by Sammy Clark, and the other is called Bold by Brianna Joy. So if you're looking for a place to start, usually these apps offer a free like week trial, so you can try them up before you commit. And then the last thing I'll say about strength training is I get asked a lot, well, I'm not really sure how, how heavy of weights do I need? And this is going to look different for everyone, but in general, I would say if you're lifting lighter weights for you, then you should be able to do 10 to 12 reps of an exercise. So say you're doing bicep curls. If you're picking a lighter weight for bicep curls, you should do 10 to 12 reps before you get tired and have to set it down. If you have a heavier weight, you should do six to eight reps before you have to set it down. So if you are picking up, you know, a dumbbell and you can only do two bicep curls, it's probably a sign that you need to go down and weight a little bit and build that strength until you can do six to eight, and then you can start to increase the weight from there. And then in general, if you are, you know, doing exercises at home, you should aim for three reps of an exercise. So if you're doing bicep curls with heavy weights, we'll say, maybe you do eight reps or eight bicep curls, take a rest for 30 to 60 seconds, and then do another set of bicep curls. Maybe you get to eight, maybe you only get to seven. That's okay. Set it down, take a rest, and then do your third set. 
All right, that is strength training. So moving on to walking, which I feel like really has had a moment ever since COVID, and that's all we could do. Um, but some benefits of walking. One, walking after meals, even just 10 minutes, even just five minutes, just getting up and moving a little bit after meals can help lower your blood sugar and prevent a blood sugar spike. So if you have insulin resistance, if you have blood sugar imbalance, if you feel like you get that afternoon crash after lunch, try to move your body a little bit after meals. So maybe, you know, you have lunch and you walk around the block and you come back home and you get back to work. Or if you're at an office and you have an hour lunch break, try to eat your lunch in the first 20, 30 minutes, go on a quick 10 minute walk. You'll be back before lunch break is over. Walking is also a gentle form of cardio that doesn't spike your cortisol levels the way that running does. So it's still going to get your blood pumping, especially if you are outside walking hills or you're walking on an incline on the treadmill, um, but it will get blood flowing. People always say, well, like, you know, isn't cardio good for your health? Don't you need cardio? Yes, absolutely. But cardio does not have to look like sprinting. Walking also, like strength training, can lead to less body fat, which can help estrogen levels, and it helps with stress management and mood overall. So if you are thinking of like, okay, I want to start work incorporating walking into my daily or weekly routine, I would first determine if it is safe to walk outside or if a treadmill is needed or if you need to be inside. You know, think about your neighborhood. Is it safe for you to be outside? Maybe it's safe for you to be outside at a certain time of day. Maybe you need to bring your partner with you or your dog with you or something. Just safety when walking is number one. Also, choose a schedule, again, that will be sustainable long-term. So if you're not a morning person and you don't want to wake up at 6.30 in the morning to go walk, then don't. That's not, you don't have to be that person. If you, you know, prefer to maybe walk after dinner or maybe you like to do a short walk before you make dinner, all great options. Just find a schedule that's going to fit for you and try to be consistent with that because then you're going to be building that habit and that habit will last long-term. And then just like with strength training, start small. So aim for one to two times a week, you know, maybe working up to four to five times a week Again, depending on what you prefer, if you love walking, walk every day. If you, you know, if it's a little bit harder for you to get outside because of your schedule or your kids or whatever you have going on, that's fine. Just get it in where you can. And really no time is too short. Five minute walk, 10 minute walk, 15 minute walk. It's all just as good as a 45 minute walk. Anything is better than nothing. So don't think if you have lunch and you're like, oh, I only have seven minutes, you know, maybe I should just like sit down and scroll Instagram, go on a walk and scroll Instagram. You know, you can, you can multitask. And then kind of on that same note, make the walk fun. So listen to a podcast, maybe bring your dog. If they're not going to be pulling on your arm the whole time, ask a friend to join you, you know, make it enjoyable. I always try to, it's like the term I think is called habit stacking. I try to habit stack when I walk. So I'll respond to emails or respond to DMs. I'll maybe post Instagram stories that need to be posted for that day. Um, I try to get stuff done and then podcast. That's like my big podcast time or I'll call my mom or I'll call friends. I'll just kind of use that time to get stuff done that can be done while I'm walking and I don't have to be sitting at home doing it. 
All right, and then moving on to Pilates, which is my preferred form of movement. If you've been on TikTok, I'm sure you have seen a million Pilates, that girl, TikTok videos. And while I do appreciate that it is becoming more well-known and more accessible, I was reading an article the other day and it referred to Pilates as a new type of movement, which Pilates is not new. Pilates was created by Joseph Pilates, who was a nurse in World War I. So not new. This dates back to World War I. And he created this form of movement for wounded soldiers. So essentially when soldiers were in their hospital beds, Joseph Pilates would attach ropes and springs and handles to their beds so they could start to build back their flexibility and their strength um, you know, while they were basically waiting to rehab and get out of the hospital. When the war ended, Joseph Pilates and his wife moved to New York City, where they met George Balanchine, who is the father of American Ballet. And George Balanchine, you know, spoke with Pilates, saw this form movement and said, this is going to be perfect for my dancers. Like they need this as cross training. So Joseph Pilates started working with George Balanchine and it became, you know, just kind of part of ballet cross training across the board. And then it was start started to be brought into other professional athletic sports as cross training. So it is used currently as cross training and rehab in like physical therapy clinics. Now, yes, it has had a big boom recently. Now there are studios popping up everywhere. But if you've seen those machines called a reformer, those Pilates machines, basically that is our modern day hospital bed. So what is Pilates? It's really a form of movement that improves core strength, spine mobility, flexibility, and posture. It can be done on equipment like the reformer. There are some other pieces of equipment as well, or it can be done on the mat with no props. So it can be done at home or in a studio. So some benefits of Pilates, it does incorporate strength training, which is going to give you all those benefits that I listed with strength training, the improved blood sugar, improved testosterone levels. It's not going to spike cortisol and it is really low impact on your joints. So it's a really safe way of moving. Similar to yoga, it also incorporates breathing techniques and kind of has that like mind body type feel to it. So it's great for managing stress. Again, does not spike cortisol. In fact, it'll help to lower cortisol if you are stressed. And it's really a safe way of moving for any population. So there are always modifications that can be made, whether you're pregnant, you're postpartum, you have a specific injury. There's always ways to adapt Pilates as long as you have an instructor that can guide you through those modifications. It can even help with pelvic floor dysfunction. So if you have pain with intercourse, pain with bowel movement, Pilates can help as well. So if you are listening to me and how much I love Pilates, I'm a Pilates instructor in case you didn't know, I teach um, mostly out of a client's home one-on-one or um, two-on-one sessions. But if you are wanting to get started in Pilates, first decide if at home or in-person Pilates sessions would work best for you. And then find an instructor you like, of course, you want to enjoy the class. And again, start small, start one or two times a week, and then you can work up to three to six times a week, depending on what other types of exercise you're doing and how much you love Pilates. 
So my favorite at-home platform that I've talked about a ton on this podcast and on social media is Leah Bartha's Be The Method. Leah's based out of New York, and she's also a former dancer. I think she danced mostly in high school. But the way she's able to get people to really connect to their body while she's just teaching virtually through these pre-recorded classes and live classes is really, it's a talent. And I'm admittedly really picky on instructors just because I do have the ballet background and I had really great ballet instructors growing up who were really, really good at helping us connect with our body and know how an exercise should feel in our body. And so I like to see that translate over to Pilates as well. And Leah has that. She can do that for you. So she offers a free week trial. I know a week or two ago, she was celebrating her two-year anniversary. And so she was offering a code, I think it was two-year, like the number two-year. And that got you 25% off a year membership. No idea if that's still active, but worth a try if you're going to check her out. And then that takes us into yoga, which is similar. And that is a mind-body exercise similar to Pilates. It can help stabilize blood sugar. It can help lower cortisol. It can help lower testosterone and it can improve quality of sleep. So similar to some of the benefits we've already talked about with the other forms of exercise. And as far as getting started, very similar to Pilates, you know, decide if an at-home practice or a in-person yoga class is right for you. Find an instructor you like, start with one to two times a week. Um, if I have to choose Pilates or yoga when it comes to PCOS in particular, um, I'm going to choose Pilates all day just because Pilates incorporates more strength training than I feel yoga does. Um, but yoga is also really great for stress management. So if you have adrenal PCOS or stress driven PCOS, then, and you love yoga, then yoga is going to be a great fit for you. As far as at home platforms, Yoga with Adrian is a free yoga source on YouTube. So if you're wanting to get started with classes at home, that's a great one. All right. So we're going to kind of dive into some of the questions now. So somebody had written in, does it help to exercise during different phases of the menstrual cycle? Absolutely. Yes. So I have an episode, I cannot remember which number it is, but I have an episode all about cycle syncing. So go back and take a listen to that because that dives into it more. But essentially, because our hormones are changing throughout our cycle, our energy levels are going to be changing as well. So during the menstrual phase, during when we have our period, this is when energy is going to be lowest and hormones are lowest. So this is a good time to rest or do gentle activities like stretching, yoga, or short walks. Then once our period is over, we're well into the follicular phase, energy starts to increase, and then we can start to kind of pick up the tempo on exercises. So maybe we start to do more strength training. Maybe we start to do hot yoga, so some more in, like intensive yoga. We start to do Pilates or longer walks. Then when we are midway through our cycle, we ovulate, and this is when energy is going to be highest. So if you are going to do high intensity training, you can harness this energy during ovulation. And this would be a good time to do it if you're going to. This is also a good time to, you know, lift heavier weights and we do harder Pilates or yoga classes. But this is your time, like, especially if you want to go to a group class and be social, 
you may find that around ovulation, you have more motivation to do that. And then as we move into the luteal phase, the first half of the luteal phase, which lasts about a week, the hormones will still be high. So you'll still have the energy for the strength training and the higher intensity Pilates and the longer walks. But then towards the end of the luteal phase, energy will start to drop and you'll start to want to kind of pair back on the exercise, take it a little slower and allow your body to rest. All right. Someone asked, what is the best exercise schedule for PCOS and what to focus on? So I think a lot of what we just touched on kind of gave you some ideas, but it really depends at the end of the day, what do you like, especially with PCOS, because PCOS is all about building sustainable habits long-term. I always say that with my patients, that it's not about a month-long crash course to heal your PCOS. It's about building these small changes that are going to last and stick with you for 5, 10, 15 years down the road. So finding a form of movement that you love is important, and that might change. This year might be Pilates. Next year might be strength training. The next year I go back to Pilates. It doesn't have to always look identical. So maybe for you, that means you strength train three times a week and you walk 30 minutes a day most days. Maybe you love Pilates and you do Pilates four to six times a week and you get in a 10 minute walk here and there. You know, maybe you love walking, so you really commit to a nighttime routine of eating dinner and going on a walk with your partner or your dog, and that's just kind of your wind-down routine for the day. In general, I don't recommend doing two-a-days, like don't exercise morning and night, Um, and, you know, walking is an exception, but, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing like a strength training session and Pilates at night because your body does need time to recover. So try to stick with one maybe like strength training focus class, and then you can get walks in there as well. And I didn't touch on bar, but bar would be kind of in the same family as Pilates yoga, maybe even more so Pilates because bar class does tend to use free weight. So it is about strength training. So bar is great too. I know that there's going to be other forms of exercise out there that we didn't touch on, but I want to just touch on the main ones. Next question is how do you pair exercise routines with eating? So depending on what time of the day you're eating at, you know, I know some people say like, I wake up, I go to a workout class at 7am. I can't eat before that. That's fine. As long as you don't feel like you're dragging through the class and you don't have any energy to get through it. That's what I prefer to do just because I feel kind of heavy if I eat before exercising. Now, if you're not exercising and you first wake up, then having something beforehand with carbs, protein, and fat anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours before exercising. So some pre-workout snacks that I like, dates with nut butter, or I've been loving dates with pumpkin seed butter. I was actually really into that during COVID and kind of forgot about it. And then I found pumpkin seed butter at the store the other day. So I've been into that. Um, Banana with nut butter is great. So the nut butter is going to give you that protein and fat, and then the fruit will give you some sugar to be used as energy. Overnight oats with nut butter is a great option for the morning. So maybe you don't do your workout until 10, 10 30 overnight oats for breakfast. Great. And then I know I've talked a little bit about the, an adrenal cocktail, which is a combination of coconut water, orange juice, protein powder, or collagen and full fat coconut milk. And even that could be a good option if you're not wanting to stomach something, but you can drink something that's going to give you some sugar from the juice and the coconut water, and then it will give you the fat and protein as well. So just some ideas. 
And then you want to have 10 to 20 grams of protein within 20 minutes of exercising, especially if you're strength training. That's really going to help to build muscle. So if that's your goal, 10 to 20 grams of protein within 20 minutes of strength training. And then as far as timing walking, so again, walking after meals in particular can be helpful because walking will help to use up the glucose in your blood quicker and will just prevent a blood sugar spike. So if you're really thinking about how can you time your walks to support your blood sugar, after meals will be it. And it can be 10 minutes after breakfast, 10 minutes after lunch, 10 minutes after dinner, boom, you've got 30 minutes in for the day. And we kind of answered this one already, but can moderate running or cardio increase testosterone or worsen hirsutism? Hirsutism is facial hair growth related to high testosterone or high DHEAS. So yes, so this form of exercise can increase cortisol and inflammation. That inflammation can trigger more testosterone production in the ovaries and the adrenal glands. And of course, we already went over how high cortisol and high stress can also lead to higher DHEAS levels. So that can lead to the hirsutism as well. And I said it before, but I said it again. If you have PCOS and you're unfamiliar with DHEAS and your doctor hasn't ordered it, and especially if they haven't ordered testosterone, and don't just assume they did because I can't tell you how many patients I meet with and we go over their labs and their hormones have never been checked, even though these two hormones are huge when it comes to PCOS, um, make sure you're asking to get that tested. And I would test it every year at least with my patients, if we are working to lower their hormone levels, we're usually retesting every three to six months, depending on how high the levels were and you know the progress we're seeing through symptoms. All right, last question, hormone-friendly exercises where I can still break a sweat. And I wish I had some of my Pilates clients with me now because some of them are dripping sweat by the time we are done our sessions. So you can... First, I'll say too, I'm personally like, I don't sweat that much. And I know it sounds like kind of annoying to say, but my body just doesn't sweat easily. I kind of hate it because I really have to go to hot yoga or go into a sauna to feel like I got that sweating, you know, that sweaty feeling. So if you're one of those people, then that's kind of like a draw. And we just have to find those few things that make us sweat. Now, that being said, you can find a really challenging Pilates class you can do a challenging strength training session. You can go to hot yoga. You can walk outside in the heat, you know, obviously try to be hydrated, but there's definitely ways to break a sweat and that doesn't have to include killing yourself on a treadmill or at Orange Theory. Um, one thing I'll say about Orange Theory, because I do have patients that do Orange Theory, and if you love it, it does, I know, include the strength training piece of it. I would just try to walk instead of run on the treadmill. That's my like number one recommendation. If you're going to keep doing Orange Theory, to walk. All right. That is the exercise episode. I hope that that was helpful and not overwhelming. And I hope that gives you some idea of maybe some new forms of exercise to consider trying out. Maybe it will start to get the wheels turning if you've been doing the same exercise routine for years or even months and just haven't seen any progress and you feel defeated and frustrated, it might just be a sign that your body wants something different. Um, so give it a try. You know, all those, I, I had mentioned the strength training, the Pilates and the yoga at home platform. So even if you're somewhere where you don't have access to a studio or a gym 
or you don't have time to get to a studio or a gym or you can't afford to get to a studio or a gym, there are at-home options. So just find something that's going to work for you. Um, and yeah, that's all I got. Let's wrap it up. All right. I will see you next Tuesday. If you have any questions about anything I spoke about, definitely shoot me a DM at Dr. Danielle period ND on Instagram or TikTok. And thank you so much for listening.